In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Haman is finished, and Mordecai is elevated to the office Haman once held. Queen Esther then pleads to the king on behalf of the Jews, and the king permits Mordecai to issue a new edict. This new edict allowed the Jews to defend themselves against whoever would attack them. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Tuesday, February 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures, to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel with foreign language materials and resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining the conversation this morning for Esther Chapter 8 is my guest, the Reverend Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Parviz, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor. How are you doing? I am doing well. Yeah, happy to be here on the program. I'm, I'm just, I'm loving Esther. It's such a great book, and we've come through the first sort of climax, and we're now, you know, we have the, we're coming down the mountain of climax, but we still have this one issue to take care of, and that is uh, what to do about this threat against the Jews. So I've, I've been doing great because I just I've been really enjoying this book. This is not a book that I have typically you know dug a lot into in the past. Yeah, it's a great melodrama. We celebrate uh, Purim every year and read the whole book of Esther every year at Purim. And, uh, and act it out. The kids act it out melodramatically, and the audience gets involved with boos and yays and stomping <laughs> on Haman and all the things we do. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome, awesome. Uh, I've missed all the good melodrama, but we still have something. You know, here's where I start to shorten the text with the whole Megillah. Because it gets a little, especially in 9 and 10, it gets a little uh, graphic. But, um, yeah, it's a great, yes, great, it can. great redemption, great promise of God. My, my favorite Messianic prophecy is in Esther chapter 4. And, uh, of course, a book that, that God's name is nowhere in, and yet his fingerprints are all over it. You know, I would actually like to hear about that uh, in chapter 4, uh, but before we do, um, and before, of course, we get into our text uh, assigned for today, why don't we start off with some prayer, brother, and I'd appreciate it if you would lead us in that prayer. You bet. Abba Father, we thank you for this day and for this um, upcoming celebration of the Book of Esther uh, and for this study that uh, prepares our hearts for the, the promise of your redemption. And we ask you, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us in faith and by your word and give us joy in Messiah Yeshua, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. So you had said something about your favorite Messianic prophecy is found in Esther chapter 4. I'd actually love to hear about that before we head into chapter 8. Well, so you have, uh, you know, again, it's, it's all about contrast. So I have a scroll of Esther that was written uh, contemporaneously with the Book of Concord. And in fact, um, it was on display at the Concordia Historical Institute with uh, an original Book of Concord at the time as well. And so you, 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 you struggle with how this got into the canon. 
because, uh, of course, God's name is nowhere in, in Esther. And yet, as I often say, um, his fingerprints are all over it. And one of my favorite Messianic prophecies is Mordechai to Esther, uh, when she is reticent and, and understandably reticent to go before the king. Uh, and, and Mordechai makes this great proclamation that salvation for the Jews will come from elsewhere. There's, no, there's, a, there's an assurance of that, that looking forward to the Messianic age and the promise of God. Uh, and yet, you know, in this day and in this time, God has put you in this place to, to stand in his stead. So it's a, it's a great uh, look forward to the reality that Mordecai's faith is strong in Messiah and, uh, and makes that clear to Esther as well. Yeah, I love that, because we've seen that, too, as we go through, you know, the whole—I guess the conclusion that a lot of us have been coming away with— is that while God is not mentioned explicitly, he's obviously there if you, um, as you might say, you know, have have faith in this Messiah, right? As we would all say, have faith that God is working behind the scenes. You can see it. You you don't—it's about seeing these things through faith. And so I I think that's great, and I I love that too. Why don't we go ahead and move on to chapter 8 and uh, get some of these verses out there on the table for us to discuss? Uh, I'm think of, I will read. Well, it's hard to divide this up. I'm going to read through uh, verse eight. Let's do verse eight. Here we go. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with a king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, a couple of things here. Maybe I should have just read the first couple of verses, because there's a bunch there too. Um, starting with yeah. those first two verses, I guess bring us up to speed where we've been a little bit in the previous chapter and, uh, and and what's going on here, right? We have this the house of Haman being handed over. Uh, I think that's that's pretty confusing if you don't really know what's going on. Well, so and people often wonder why the king just didn't, you know, rescind the edict that Haman had had um, had made. Uh, and the deal is his signet ring. And I and you and I hate to say this, Pastor, but. When you were reading, you kind of left out the, the uh, verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther. That's a really important part of 
of our our forum party because I uh, use a plunger when I, with the kids, and they always get a big kick out of that. But um, yeah, but I certainly king, did. I'm I'm looking at my text right here. How did I miss that? You're absolutely right. When the king held out the yeah. golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Yeah. We've seen that earlier when she first approached the king, and it's here too. I don't know why I skipped that, yeah. but but thanks for pointing yeah. that out. The golden, the golden scepter is really important to a forum party here. That's for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so and the kids all dressed up. You know, there's a king. There's Esther. They're they're all dressed up as the, as Haman and everybody else in the in this particular. We, we call it a Purim spiel, a play. But um, you know, the king cannot. You know, the the key to this is verse eight, where he says to Esther that uh, a, that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. He's done that already for Haman, and Haman has done that, and this plan to go out and slaughter all the Jews is set in place and cannot be revoked. Uh, it would have been, a, I think, a nicer ending to this story if they had simply not had this great war and everybody just partied and said yay. But uh, unfortunately, that's not how it works with uh, East, Near Eastern kings, right? They they, so let it be written, so let it be done, as we're used to hearing uh, Charlton Heston say, or no, it's uh, Yul Brenner say. Um, so it can't be revoked, so something else has to be done. And that's why, why, as you did in the intro, he's basically given the Jews the right to defend themselves, not to avert the travesty as it already is. Um, and, you know, the, well, I, I want to point out, I want to point out before you continue, brother, that this is just, I understand the historical aspects of it, but looking at just for the surface level, it just shows you sometimes the ridiculousness of politics, right? Because yeah, exactly. King Ahasuerus, he's in this, I guess, problem because he handed over his authority to his prime minister, Haman, to begin with, who did this evil deed with it. With you know, he, he told the king about it, but I've always been very curious on how even concerned the king was with this. He's like, here, do what you do what you want. And so he makes this yeah. unrevocable what? rule that says you will attack these Jews. And then later he has to say, okay, well, here's another unrevocable rule for the Jews to defend themselves against the attack that I authorized before. It's just, right. it's just the sort of a fall fallacy and I'm sorry, a folly of it all. Yeah, you kind of see the King sitting there with this large map of his territory and the Jews and the soldiers and he's playing with them like pawns. But, I, you know, I don't think that's—I I think the king trusted Haman uh, for some bizarre reason. Uh, only God knows uh, that authority. And it is the rule, right? Uh, it is the rule. Uh, so, so he basically has to say he's caught between a rock and a hard place, uh, his wife. And, he, and she, she declared to him by now who she is, and she is among the people that Haman is going to destroy— and so, you know, probably for him, the Jews in his, uh, you know, he was, you know, he, his ego was massaged by Haman because, you know, these Jews refused to bow down to you. They refused to, to uh, see you as their, uh, their, their godly authority, in, in other words. Um, and, uh, and so he stroked his ego and, and Akashveris just replied, responded in ego. 
uh, probably with not a great deal of thought. And if, if you look through the whole book, Akashmeris doesn't deal with everything with a great deal of thought in the first place. <clears throat> I mean, it isn't until he's, he can't sleep and he needs to bore himself to, to bed that he reads the, the annals of the king and finds out about this plot. And I mean, he doesn't, he's kind of clueless. He's, he's sheltered and protected by all the machinations of whatever royalty is. Uh, and now it's just coming home to roost. Yeah, I love that scene though, where he's he's so bored. He's like, "Come tell me how great I am," and then they just randomly yeah, exactly. pick this selection. And Heyman does yeah. sort of the same thing. He goes home and he starts, you know, relating to his wife and friends all the ways that he's so great. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously we could dig into all the parts we already have because they are they are so great. But here they, as you said, they've come home to roost because the king is now faced with the fact that he loves his queen. And while I personally think he probably doesn't care one way or the other about the Jews. He certainly cares about his yeah. queen. That's sort of the approach that she takes. And uh, yeah, he doesn't want to see her uh, miserable. And but, but then just this idea that he then says, okay, well, I'm going to now give, I'm going to hand over my ring now to, to Mordecai. He's, he's sort of the new Haman. And uh, yeah, sure, do whatever you want, which is, again, how he got himself in this place uh, in the first yeah. place. I also think it's more... interesting that, go ahead, pardon me. Mordecai seems to be more of a strategist, so than the king. Yes. <laughs> always Qu happens Queen... when I'm up there. No, no worries. Queen Esther and and Mordecai uh, definitely have uh, some plans. You know, they, I think they're definitely more well, at least in terms of this one issue. So let's also be honest, as as significant as this issue is to them, and of course to us in history. Uh, it, it's probably not that important to King Harris. He has this gigantic kingdom, people pulling him in every direction. So while we see this as being the dramatic focus of this series of events for Ashashawaris, it's it was probably, you know, maybe 20 minutes of his day. You know, then he's being pulled in the other direction. Yeah. Well, what about the Greeks? And pulled another direction. Well, what should we do with this battalion? Pulled another direction. What should we do about these taxes? So, you know, I, it's it's interesting how the events of our lives seems so direct and important, and maybe it wasn't to him, and yet that's sort of the whole point, that God has the ability, uh, and certainly does, uh, interact with us on a very personal level. We can never really say, uh, well, our concerns are of no interest to God. He's not a king like Ahasuerus. Um, I yeah. do think it's interesting in verse 7. Go ahead. There's a modern lesson for us in that whole aspect, in that you know, for uh, and again, take this for what you will. Our ministry is a ministry that is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people, uh, and very you know we're a really tiny part of our large church body. And honestly, our church body is not all that concerned about this particular part of our ministry. Uh, it's just one piece of uh, one little tiny piece of all the things that we do, but yet. God makes this little people in this vast empire really important now to Akashveras, right? And, and, and I think God has that same desire also for our witness to Jewish people. They might be the, a tiny little people on the face of this earth. You know, there might, you know, there's not, I think the last census was about 14 million in a, in a world of almost 8 billion, right? It's just not that big a deal, and yet I think this is still really important to God. Well, of course it's important to God, right? Yeah, and, and this is why 
within a large, diverse church as we are, which is even tinier than the representation of Jewish people in the world, uh, we we certainly have to split our resources. So it's it's good that we have people who like you who have a heart for reaching to Jews, and we have people who have a heart for reaching to uh, uh, Haitians. We have a, a heart, people who have hearts for reaching to uh, people in Brazil, and and so it kind of takes that diversification for us to continue to spread the word, because certainly we can't all focus all of our energy and efforts toward any one section, or nothing will ever get done. You know, and I think that yep. ends up being a lot of the problem in the world, that if you if you have some concern for one particular aspect of society, an issue, uh, whether it be a, a social issue or whether it be a particular people that you want to minister to, um, it doesn't mean that or you don't care for the either. others. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't mean that you don't care for the others. It just means that, you know, well, this is where, I, you know, I'm going to direct my efforts. But if everybody directed their efforts only at one particular group, then, yeah, you would have all the others being neglected. So that's why it's wonderful that we have such a uh, a broadening um, and and diverse focus in our in our in our Senate for sure. So we see here too in our text that the uh, the as it's as it's leading up, I see a couple things. We have Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, identified in this way again. It's sort of a a recap as she's explaining what's going on as if the king wouldn't know who she's talking about. And then, of course, the, the, we also see that Esther is given the house of Haman, but then <laughs> Mordecai is referred to as Mordecai the Jew again. So why do we see this repetition of identifiers in this text? You know, we, we've been reading it. It's not a long book. Why do we get these again? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing. First of all, we have um, a, that whole identifier of Agate, the Agagite and the Jew uh, harkens back to a centuries-old, by this time, um, conflict between those two peoples. And so, you know, you start to see the roots of Haman's hatred uh, for the Jews in the historical roots of his own family. Um, and so there's a lot of history that goes with that as well. And I think that's just God, uh, you know, reminding us of that history and helping us understand the, the background of this conflict. Sure. Um, I've always read it as the Agagite is more of a derogatory title assigned to, uh, to Haman, because um, his hatred, of course, for Mordecai begins even uh, before he knows he's a Jew. Uh, but yeah, I think these are sort of signifiers here that, you know, this is like that conflict of old. I, what I guess I was thinking is just it's interesting, though, that having read it and not being very long, that we have here um, Queen Esther herself identifying, um, you know, identifying uh, Haman as the Agagite, uh, but then the author calling Mordecai the Jew. So I just think it's kind of, I, I'm sure it's just to recall the whole dramatic scenario, as you said, but I do find it, I do find it quite interesting. And so yeah, another yeah. question, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to move on to another subject. I'd love to hear what you had to say. Well, I'm just saying the, uh, so, you know, obviously this is, especially in Jewish communities, this book is the celebration of God's victory over anti-Semitism. And of course, we, you know, we hear that term a lot. And Jews have um, 
always looked at Haman as a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, who were viscerally hated the, the God's people. And there's that that's the historical backdrop of the Agathite. So, um, you know, that, it, it does bring up this conflict in today's world of this anti-Semitism that even today still rears its ugly head. Um, and, and, the, and the reality that God, even with that reality in the world today, um, you know, it's so, it's so stupid. Even our building, which is obviously Christian, but does have some Jewish symbolism on it as well. You know, we have had swastikas painted on our, the front of our building, and we've been, you know, neo-Nazis have targeted our building in the past. Uh, that, that kind of stupidity still goes, but the, the lesson of Esther is even in that environment, which was here and is here today, God is still God, and God, you know, it's a, it's a stark reminder of the distinction between good and evil, and yet God's power over both. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In regards to, uh, you know, Haman and his Agagite status, there's certainly some divisions in the scholarship, plenty of plenty of rooms for different interpretations. But you're 100 percent. You're 100 percent right. I completely agree with you that we have this uh, overarching idea that God's going to protect his people. And of course, in these days, um, you know, I think it's interesting because we think of anti-Semitism, a a term that was coined in the 1870s. um, And we have this focus on, well, we're going to we're going to uh, people are going to hate the Jews just for their Jewishness, but I think ultimately, whether it becomes the Jews or whether it becomes uh, even hatred sure. towards Christians and others, it's really this hatred toward God, right? Because that's what they yeah. represent—a a people that are set apart. Um, and then, and today, you know, I think. We, go ahead. I mean, today we see as I mean, it doesn't make maybe it doesn't make the news like you know hatred against the Jews does. But the hatred against the church is growing, and that that right. sort of I, I I lump that into anti-Semitism because that's God's people set apart for His purposes, and the world hates those things. Yeah, I, and and I think that definitely is what it ends up boiling down to. And and you are you're right. We're going to see that more and more against the church uh, the church in explicit ways. Um, so. Yeah. Our, so we have here we have them all sort of coming together. Now we have this uh, this last uh, this last time. So he's given it says, but you may rise verse eight. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king, sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. So we find ourselves in the same position where he hands it over to Mordecai and, and Queen Esther and says, okay, you can you can have it. Take care of it. You know whatever you want to do is fine with me. Um. Yeah, I'd like to. He would have just revoked his edict, but no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's probably some practicality too um, in terms of revoking an edict. I mean, if you're sending it out to a empire that's this large, to then send out the revocation of that would not only take quite a bit of time, but then you wouldn't have a uh, a guarantee that it would be thoroughly distributed. So it's actually kind of practical that says once you've written something down and sent it out in this era, yeah. you can't really pull that back. Uh, but he's essentially starting a, a mini civil war within his own kingdom because of this rule. You know, I can't, I can't tell people not to 
lay their hands and try to destroy the Jews because I already ordered them to, but I'm going to tell the Jews that, yeah, it's okay if you defend yourselves. It, it, I understand what's going on, but it seems like a, a, a pale response too. Yeah. And I, you know, I often, uh, you know, whenever I read through this myself, I often wonder, wouldn't they have defended themselves anyway? But then I look at the Holocaust and no, uh, it didn't happen. It always frustrates me. Uh, I mean, apart from the Warsaw Ghetto, there was very little, you know, that we know in history of the Jewish people rising up against the Nazi. I, I would much rather go down fighting than to go down like a sheep. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's the thought that I would have, too. Uh, yeah. One question as we as we head closer and closer to the break, I wanted to see your perspective. So he says, I've given Esther the house of Haman. It also says earlier that he gave um, Mordecai about this house, too. She set him over the house of Haman. What What is this yeah. language? What is the house of Haman that they are now in charge of or possessing? What does that mean? I mean, it's I mean, frankly, most of the house of Haman, at least humanly, is destroyed now. Right. They're, they've hung, been hung on the gallows or, or at least they're going to be. And uh, but there's also there's also property, history, and power that comes with that house, and so he's turned that over to Esther, who has given that to her, her uncle. Right. Okay. So it's about authority. As you said, Haman was the prime minister, and now Mordecai is acting as such, and he is. I mean, he gets that, uh, and that, that that's the the lovely irony about the king wanting to honor Mordecai and Haman thinking it was himself and, you know, laying out this wonderful thing for himself that the king finally says, yeah, do that to Mordecai. Uh, and that, of course, you hear the bum, bum, bum at the end yeah. in the middle of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but one of my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah. Well, back in chapter 3, verse 13, you know, when we get this first edict, part of it was not only to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, but it was also to plunder all their goods. Now, that comes oh, yeah. up late. That comes up later, too, but it also comes up here in yet another ironic comeuppance and turn of events because Mordecai, who's a fairly mild offense to Haman caused Haman to want to confiscate all the goods of the Jews is now given all the goods of Haman. Um, Haman being now convicted as a criminal, something his property being confiscated would have been part of that conviction. Uh, so we also see that there too, this, this second or actually probably third or fourth by this time, a turn of events that you might not have expected. And the plundering of goods goes all the way back to the, the, you know, the people in Egypt, the Jews who were being delivered from Egypt, and they plundered the goods of the Egyptians. So uh, plundering seems to be part and parcel of victory. Absolutely. And we'll have to see if they take that as an opportunity now, that they've been given this authority to plunder the goods, and so we'll see if they do. But we'll have to uh, wait just a few minutes before we get to that part of our text, folks. That's because it's time for a break. When we come back, Pastor Parviz and I will continue with Esther chapter 8. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. If you have questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to say hello, or, you know, just check in with me, I'd love to hear from you. Direct your emails to pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. Really, I just want to thank you so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. You can tell your friends and your family that they can tune in on the air, on demand at KFUO.org, or through the KFUO app. We can also be heard on your favorite podcasting platform. Now, Pastor Parviz, before the break, we had really just gotten through verse 9. Probably time to move on to some other, uh, to some other verses, but anything else you want to lay down before we move on? I think we have a lot to cover yet. Well, let's do it. So I'm going to read through verse 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Hashoeras and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready to ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. All right, there we go. Take us through this. We have this edict coming forth now that we've just heard about. And, uh, and Mordecai is the author of this edict, which makes it interesting, some of the things that are included. It's, it's absolutely quite dramatic, isn't it? He talks about these swift, the swift horses, the stud of the king. Uh, he, he, the writer here writes uh, quite dramatically about these events and their importance, doesn't he? 
Yeah, it's very dramatic. You know, we have this important, uh, you know, bread from the royal stud, right? You don't get horses better than that. Uh, you kind yeah. of imagine that these are the horses that would be wearing crowns if they were escorting Mordecai through the city square. So these are the good horses and the fast ones and the couriers are swiftly going out with this decree. And a couple of things I note is I wonder if, you know, we talk about how you can't revoke the other order, but if people saw this order, would they still attack? Wouldn't they say, well, clearly the king has changed his mind concerning his view of the Jews. Now, I mean, if you've read ahead, we know what's happened, but pretending like we haven't read ahead, you know, you, you might think, okay, well, this will actually undo the previous edict virtually anyway, in, in, even if not by, you know, official, official means. Well, perhaps that's Mordecai's hope. Uh, and, and the reality is, one could wonder, if just at this point, how powerful really could the Jews be in this land that they would even be able to stand against an armed force coming after them? But again, Mordecai shows his faith uh, by assuming that, I suppose. I mean, I suppose that the words that they are allowed to gather and defend their lives, I'm guessing that means gather arms. Yeah, assemble maybe also. I mean, you know, just sort of yeah, gather in yeah. terms of recruit people. Like they can organize this. It's not just that they have to sit in their houses and wait to be attacked. It's really, all yeah. right, go out and get ready. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, this, this is a, a preparing for war. Now, knowing what we know about, you know, spoiler alert, this will be in tomorrow's episode— but they, they actually, they, they are successful, but they do not plunder the goods. And that's sort of a lot of haze made out of that. You know, look at how they don't plunder the goods. They just defend themselves, and they defend themselves very ferociously. Uh, but with Mordecai being the author of this, you know, it's not the king. It's, it's him. He's doing it with the king's authority. Um, so it's interesting that he sends it, and he says these three things. He, of course, uses the same language to mirror the edict that had went out against the Jews, to destroy, to right. kill, and to yeah. annihilate. Then he adds children and women included, he includes that, and to plunder their goods. So Mordecai has included in this edict that not only are you to kill, destroy, and annihilate anyone who attacks you, but you can also kill, destroy, and annihilate their children and women and to take everything that they own. Um, that seems like while on the one hand he's playing by the king's rules, the same thing that was said against them, it's not a in today's world it wouldn't be good optics, we would say, right? It seems very yeah. very harsh. What do you think? Overkill. Seems overkill, right? And and honestly, this is exactly what happened to Haman's house, right? So he's he's basically bringing this edict to bear for all houses who attack the Jews, they will be treated as Haman was. Right. They'll be treated the same way. Uh, right, but yeah. I guess what I'm, yeah, I guess what I'm getting at though, is that, you know, we might think that he would take this opportunity. I'm not saying to show mercy, but to certainly um, defend themselves in a manner that's more consistent with their faith uh, yes, we have plundering and goods in terms of an example from Egypt, which God had permitted, not 
you know, one of the not like Moses or something. And then um, we certainly understand the defending or attacking. But I guess what I'm taking a surprise to as a, you know, 21st century uh, person is the idea that children and women are included. What kind of context can you give us to reconcile that? I mean, Pastor, let's be honest, this is war. And I think Mordecai is essentially trying to avert war, avert this thing, but you've got to send out the the most dire circumstances to bring people to their knees that they might fear war. And so when, you know, if it's just the soldiers, but you know, it's, now it's the women and the children, that should give the attackers a, a pause, one would hope. And so I think yes, Mordecai, is, Mordecai is sending out the most dire of things, because keep in mind, these edicts just didn't go to the Jews, right? If they just went to the Jews, what good would they do? Uh, yes, the Jews would be empowered, but still, the, I think the the option here is when he sends it out to all 127 provinces in their script, and he's basically telling them, this is what could happen. You guys better surrender, essentially. Well, and we do see them, of course, um, mimicking the exact language of the previous edict, which, as yeah. we said earlier, was probably the intent in terms of sh- demonstrating on paper, even if not you know, legally able to do so, that the king has completely reversed his previous opinion. Um, and we do know that that as we get forward, they, they don't plunder the goods, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, so we have this very dire warning that now the edict is that the Jews will defend themselves. I assume previously they would be punished for defending themselves even more than the edict that said to destroy them. Uh, but now it's destroy, kill, and annihilate anybody that might attack them. So on the one hand, despite the plundering goods and uh, um, the destroy, killing, and annihilating women and children, it also tends to have a uh, defensive posture. Um, so you said earlier that, well, this is war. Well, I suppose if children are attacking people in war, then they would be in the combatants. Uh, but, you know, you still see just sort of the viciousness of of these of these times that they're living in. Yeah. And, and notice also, and I think this is important, he chose one day and he and he labeled the day. It's, it's a, you know, it's a little bit in the future, but it's going to be on the 12th month, the 12th month and the 13th day. And uh, it's that day that this is all going to come down. You know, that's another thing that's really weird is that you don't usually signal the day of your attack. Right, right. So you definitely have that. Of course, uh, remember, though, Haman signaled the day of his attack because they left it up to the gods decide which day. And so the day that Mordecai uses here is the day that um, that Haman had chosen. Right. And that's the day. And so he's, he's using the same day. And that, of course, is the day now that we celebrate Purim. Sure, sure. Right, right. And, of course, you know, I'd be, fo- be so far for me to tell you, uh, but we do know that he actually extends it a day, which is why Purim, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. is a two-day festival, right, at least? Yeah, two, two days. Yeah. And then outside of the, the, the diaspora, it can be three. I mean, there's two Jews, three opinions on Purim, on everything. Sure. Well, uh, that's uh, yeah. So we have this copy of everything's to be issued in every province, publicly displayed, as you said. Uh, and I see that too. I see the the language here. I guess what I was trying to get at for people who might be concerned 
is that the language here it, it sounds so visceral to us in uh, our we we might argue and unsuccessfully more civilized times, but at the same time it is a, a parallel to the previous one. So it's not right. as though this was Mordecai's desire, but rather he's countering Haman's edict by using the exact same language. And sending it out early, of course, is necessary to get people to be confident about defending themselves. But as you all rightfully pointed out, hopefully we could uh, spare some bloodshed if they know that they're going to be resisted by the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can we pull from this text right here? Bef- you know, I, I'm not quite ready to read the very last few verses, uh, but surely we can find some more stuff in here. It's a, it's such a, a dense description of his edict. I just, uh, you know, it, I think when we look at what, again, you have to go forward in the text in order to see what actually happened. We do see Mordecai's heart here, even in this vicious reproduction of Haman's edict. Um, and so, you know, his this whole war between all of the armed forces of 127 province and then against the Jews who are in their midst, it's all about what God is doing in that land. And yeah, while God does you know, and this is always the challenge for us, especially as, you know, Jews Jews often when they're struggling with the person of God or especially the person of Jesus, and they, they start to actually read the text of Scripture and discover things like, you know, you send the Jews into the promised land and they're supposed to kill everything, even the cattle. Um, including women and children, all, all of everything that is before you who will cause you to sin. Uh, and so you kind of see that language here. And, and then they say, so why does God change? Why does God uh, change into this loving God that you guys have in the New Testament? And the only answer I have for that is he doesn't change. He just pours out his wrath on his own son. Uh, and, right. and, uh, and that is the key to, uh, to, you know, God is still a God of wrath. God is still a God who despises evil, uh, and he punishes evil. Um, but he does so in such a way as to draw us to him. And in some ways, there's a, uh, there's a foreshadowing of that here. Do you find, and not, not to derail it, but do you find in your ministry, because you have a, a focus on reaching um, Jews who are lost without Christ, do you find that there is this sort of understand, a little bit of a Zionist understanding that because uh, someone is uh, Jewish uh, or, you know, uh, ethnically or religiously, that somehow they are entered into, I guess, God's kingdom through a, a previous covenant? Do you run into that, that type of a scenario a lot? Um, even among I mean, I, those who have already become. More, um, I run into that more from Christians, obviously, than I do right. from uh, from Jews. Uh, John Hagee is the classic teacher of two-covenant theology, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, it's, it is, you know, we always have to wrestle with the reality that there is only one way to heaven, and it's through a faith in Christ Jesus in the Messiah that God sent, both for his Jewish people as well as for the world. Um, 
And so then we, you know, we struggle with the imagery of the, of the tree that we are grafted into. And, you know, in, in Romans 11, uh, Paul's teaching that Jews by unbelief are cut off from that tree. They are no longer Jews. Um, and those who are grafted in by faith through Messiah, though they even be Gentiles, are, are, are receive all the promises that God has given to his first children. And so, you know, there is still an importance in the reality that God still has a heart for his first children, and yet he still punishes the, the wrath, and he's with wrath, the unbelief that they have uh, exhibited. And so, you know, we have to walk that tenterhook uh, pretty well with both, with both Christians as well as Jews. Yeah, I would imagine that it's more of an issue with Christians, and, and I guess that's why I was asking, because it would seem to me that if you don't understand that very clearly, then you might have a hard time motivating Christians to love their Jewish neighbors by pointing them to Christ. If otherwise, they just think, oh, okay, well, these guys are in. It kind of reminds me of when um, Jehovah's Witnesses might come to the door, and if you really press them on some of their theology, you find out that they they actually believe a lot of people will be in in one of their heavens or their lesser heavens, um, even re, even if they're not, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, and because their understanding of heaven is probably full at this point, according to their own theology, you know, you can still get into their heaven and remain a Lutheran. And so there's this sort of conflict of interest if you under if you're starting to go out and witness to Jews, and and you have some folks who think, well, this is not very necessary because, well, you know, they should know Jesus or they should know. The, the the messianic story and they've continued to reject him. Well, no, everybody rejects him. And then that's yeah, why exactly. we have to go out and tell them. Well, I yeah. didn't mean to derail the conversation there, but I, let me get just a, the last few verses in and then we can bring whatever else we want. This is verses 15 through 17, the end of the chapter. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, I definitely want you to get into that very last verse, but maybe before we dive right into that, uh, take us through this last part of our chapter. Well, it's, you know, obviously Mordecai is recreating essentially what Haman wanted him wanted for himself, right? Uh, the royal robes, uh, the golden crown, all of the things, the processionals. Um, and it's interesting because the day has yet to come of this great, battle that's a that's that's apparently going to happen right and yet just on the publication of this edict there seems to be great joy among the jewish people that you know that maybe this isn't going to happen to us who knows or uh, it's hard to believe that the joy comes from now we can pull out our our ar-15 and defend ourselves um it's, it is this there's an expression of great faith in the part of the Jewish people here because of this edict, even to the point of, and I, th I find this really interesting, that, and, and unfortunately, this has become sort of a post-Second Temple uh, anachronism where, where Jewish people, and, and I'm grateful that they do, but they don't proselytize, right? 
the only way that you know that Jews really uh, tolerate Gentiles becoming Jews is through intermarriage and, and the, the whole conversion thing that goes on there. But there's no real understanding for in the Jewish people today that God is a God who has called all people to himself. That's a uniquely Christian understanding, right? Uh, and yet here we have the result of this decree is that, now you, again, the language is somewhat vague. They declare themselves to be Jews. Does this mean that they are now turning to faith in the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Uh, I can't tell you that. It's maybe just covering their own tail, much like, uh, you know, even Jews did during World War II when they were baptized to try to save themselves from the Germans. But um, it is an interesting uh, response on the part of the peoples in this, in this great kingdom. Absolutely. I mean, we have this um, two major views of this, and they're kind of very much, as you pointed out, opposed to each other. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them, so they declared themselves Jews. So it's kind of like, okay, we just got this edict that the Jews are going to defend themselves, so now we're Jews too, don't hurt us. But the problem yeah. with that interpretation is that the, the, the edict is they only defend themselves if attacked. Right. And, and they only attack those who hate them. So to become yeah. a Jew, to save yourself from the Jews doesn't make sense. And it likewise doesn't make sense, in my opinion, because the previous edict still stands that you can attack all the Jews. So if you right. go out there and say, I'm a Jew to protect yourself, that's not going to work either. Um, yeah, so the other interpretation true. is that they are becoming Jewish. And fear here is more of a um, like a catechism. God working in their hearts. Yeah, a catechism fear, right. Yeah, I couldn't imagine a situation where, where people would all do that. Yeah, we fear fear and love God, right? So there, there is this fear that is not afraid fear. It is a, a, a divine respect of God and his people. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it either way. Well, what yeah. else can we learn? So we're here at the end of the show, but we've gone through Chapter 8, um, you know, anything else you want to point out or maybe set the stage for what happens tomorrow with Chapter 9? I mean, so we have uh, great detail on the day of the 13th day of the 12th month. Uh, that, and, and, you know, perhaps Mordecai's hope that this would, that this edict would stop the war if that is, in fact, what he might have hoped, it doesn't stop the war, right? So uh, we see what's going to happen, and and yet we still see God's hand in all that happens on that day. And that's, of course, the, the day today. This year, it's March the 10th. Interesting. So you guys celebrate uh, Purim in your congregation. You shared with us a little bit about how what that looks like. Um, what's uh, what's your decision for sharing that? Is that just because you're wanting to connect it to um, the the Jewish roots of those people that you are um, serving? Well, and, and certainly, I you know, when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean you give up your ethnicity or your traditions. Uh, and in fact, if we look at this text as a text for the church, because if these are the people of God— then we are the people of God, then this text is for us. 
then, you know, it says we should celebrate these days. And there are days, you know, I, I agree that we are freed from the law of celebrating these historic uh, biblical feasts, but we are not spared of the joy of celebrating the, the God's victories through all these biblical feasts. So I think it's very appropriate even for the church to mark this day, read this book, enjoy the the fun of acting it out with children. And, and there's even as adults, you know, it typically doesn't happen during, uh, um, you know, children's parties. But unfortunately, there is also a drinking game that goes along with a poem for adults. Uh, but it's, it's a very joyous time to celebrate God's victory over evil. And why should just uh, why, why shouldn't the church enjoy that time as well? And so we, you know, it's not, we, we do it for a lot of reasons. One, it's a, it's a good time to witness to Jewish people with regard to God's plan throughout history and his, his revelation through Mordecai and the fulfillment of that revelation in Messiah Jesus. But it's also just a lot of fun, and it's a good time to learn a little Bible study. Wow, sounds good. Sounds good. Do you combine all of these also with the Western feasts too, or do you sort of exclusively oh, yeah. do Jewish ones? No, we do all the feasts. We party a lot. All the time. <laughs> all right, brother. There's always well, a good reason to, to uh, thank God for all the blessings that he pours out upon us. That's true. There's no there's no shortage of um, our need to remember all the great things that God yeah. has done for us, both both in, to our ancestors of old and, of course, to the church today. And as we you know go into an age where the church is becoming increasingly more and brazenly more uh, persecuted, uh, I think stories like Esther here remind us of just just who we have on our side. Um I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Pastor. Folks, tomorrow we move right along into Esther chapter 9. The date set by Haman for the destruction of the Jews has arrived, but on display is the bravery of Queen Esther and Mordecai as they stand up for their people against their enemies and encourage the Jews to defend themselves. Will they succeed? Uh, they do. Spoiler alert, they do. But tune in to hear how. Then we'll learn more about the Feast of Purim on Thursday, and we'll finish out the Book of Esther also. And then Friday, we find ourselves in a brand new topic and all the way back into the New Testament once again with the pastoral epistles. We'll start with 1 Timothy, and then we'll go to 2 Timothy, followed by Titus. So that's an all-new topic, which begins at the end of this week on Friday. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. Until we meet again, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.